0: Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, your word is a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. Your word is breathed out by you. Lord, your word offers instruction. Your word offers us insight into who you are and what you have done and who we are and what we must do to be saved. God, I pray that you would teach us by your spirit today what your spirit can only teach us. Lord, that we would hear your voice and that you would save us from the coming wrath. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, Well, if you know me, you have probably heard me quote Monty Python a number of times. I know Monty Python's polarizing. See you, Matt. But I love Monty Python. One of my favorite Monty Python skits is one where John Cleese plays a self-defense instructor teaching his students how to defend themselves against a man armed with fresh fruit. He convinces one of his students to attack him with a banana. And his method of defense as the man comes at him with a banana is to pull out a pistol and shoot him point blank in the chest and then eat the banana. Okay, much of Monty Python's humor is based in its absurdity, okay? It's absurd to think that anyone would need to defend themselves against a man armed with fresh fruit. And the retaliation for such an offense is absurd. Such a drastic response to such a menial offense. And in training, nonetheless. Like, they're just practicing. He shoots them, okay? Now, Monty Python's humor is not for everyone, but I share this story for one reason. Because many people read Genesis 6 and see a similar absurdity. Okay, this passage records humanity's corruption, and it records God's response to it. And if we don't recognize the offensiveness of what's happening here, then we risk seeing God's response as outrageous. Outrageous let me try to summarize what's happening here. A group of men called the sons of God are marrying the daughters of men and producing children through them. What's so bad about that? What's, what's so wrong with it? I just officiated a wedding last night. Some of you were there. There's nothing that took place that was deserving of the wrath of God. However, I did split my pants on the dance floor. (laughs) Unfortunate, but not wrath. Had to leave immediately. If you were there and I didn't say goodbye to you, I'm sorry. I I had to leave. What's going on with this? God responds to this grave offense, sons of God marrying the daughters of men. And he responds by drastically shortening the human lifespan. And then it's immediately connected to what I think is the bleakest description of human evil in all of scripture. Genesis 6, 5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How far has the image of God fallen in humanity by the time we get to Genesis 6, 5? And it is this state of evil that leads God to destroy all life In a great flood. Why would people getting married lead to the total, irredeemable depravity of the entire human race? This is one of the most difficult things for people to wrap their mind around about God. Even more difficult than the question of how Noah could have coaxed the animals two by two onto the ark and found space for them on this wooden boat is the question of why a loving God who made the world and filled it with beauty could just a few pages later destroy it all and everyone in it. It's a hard thing for people to wrap their minds around. And so we need to understand what in the world is happening here. Now, throughout our series in Genesis, we have been doing our best to understand that the worldview of the original audience of the Bible was not the same as ours, okay? The the ancient Near Eastern peoples and the Jewish people, they did not look at the world like 21st century Western Americans and Canadians, I know it's so much better up there, but you're still very different than the biblical context. They saw the world very differently. Okay, and this means that sometimes we can come across something in scripture that we don't necessarily have categories for. We don't don't necessarily see the world in the same way. And so rather than look at their culture and go, oh, they're so primitive, they're so stupid. We need to try to understand how they saw the world so that we can get at the truths that they're trying to communicate so that we can apply those timeless truths to the world that we live in today. And so sometimes this can make walking through the biblical text feel like treading through a minefield navigating our way gingerly, trying to avoid these difficult texts, trying to avoid where, oh, I don't want to place my foot too hard on that text. It might, you know, blow up and cause problems in my faith. And so we tread through the text like it's a minefield. But as students of God's word, we want to take every text seriously. God's recorded this for a reason. There's something he wants to teach us. And so we need to trust that by the Holy Spirit, we can see that difficult texts are not minefields to be avoided, but gold mines to be eagerly excavated. So we today, we get to dig. We get to dig deep into God's word and and, and find the treasure that he has for us here. And so to begin, we need to discuss the identity of the sons of God, what their sin was, who their offspring are that are called the Nephilim and why it evoked God's judgment in the flood. Okay, buckle up. There's three views. The first view understands the term sons of God as referring to supernatural beings such as angels, who were in rebellion against God and came down to earth and corrupted the human race at the genetic level by interbreeding with them. I'm gonna say that again. The first view, the supernatural view, understands the sons of God to be supernatural beings who fell from heaven and tried to corrupt humanity at the genetic level by interbreeding with them. The basis for this is because every time the phrase sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it's speaking of divine beings. Every single time. Job 1.6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. God is holding court among the heavenly host, And all of these divine beings, these angelic beings, supernatural beings, when I say divine, I don't mean like we think of God, right? But these are supernatural beings that come into the presence of God. Satan is there with them. And every time this exact phrase, sons of God is used, it refers to these angelic beings. And so according to this view, The children produced by this unholy union then are superhuman demigods called Nephilim who eventually become the giant clans in scripture and oppress God's people. We know Goliath, um, Og is another one in the Old Testament. These these superhuman uh, giants in the land that the spies that Moses sent into the promised land came back and said, we were like grasshoppers. we can't possibly fight them. Other ancient tales from Mesopotamia and other cultures have characters like this. One very famous text is the Gilgamesh epic. Some of you have heard of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh in this, this story was a 15 foot plus tall demigod with divine parentage uh, who had all of these incredible exploits and once uh, was thought was thought to be pure fable. Many people throughout the history of uh, of the world just thought this story of Gilgamesh was uh, was pure fable. But people more and more today, because of archaeological discoveries and things like that, are ready to admit acknowledge Gilgamesh as a historical figure. Whether he was 15 feet tall or had you know some otherworldly uh, parentage, that's, that's beside the question, uh, that's beside the point. The people who wrote the tale believed that he was beyond human. And so those who hold this view, uh, the supernatural being's view, uh, see the motivation of the sons of God as being an attempt to corrupt the seed of the woman. Remember from Genesis 3.15, just several weeks ago, Right? God said that I will create enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. It's this promise that a savior will come and will undo the work of the serpent, will undo the work of the, the, the fallen spiritual beings who rebelled against God and led the humans into sin, that that sin would be crushed and the people, the humans, would have a Savior. But these sons of God, according to this view, see that if they can corrupt the human line so that the seed of the woman is also the seed of the serpent, then the Savior could never come. If we can, if we can just make every human being one of us, the Savior can't come. And so the flood came because humanity was at risk of being totally corrupted by the demonic realm and irredeemable. And so God sends a flood and saves undefiled Noah and his family to start the world over again, okay? That's the supernatural view. The second view understands the sons of God to be human rulers, mere men, but powerful men, who claimed divine origins and used their power to impose themselves upon any woman they desired. So support from this view comes from the historical evidence that kings typically in the ancient Near Eastern world exalted themselves as divine and wanted to be worshiped as gods. We see Pharaoh doing that. We see Caesar doing that in the first century. And this would mean that the sin of the sons of God was an abuse of power that's depicted by some form of sexual violence or polygamy. And so their children are merely human. The Nephilim are just merely human uh, warriors raised in the lap of power and they pursue these vainglorious exports and and, and conquer people and pillage towns and perpetuate the cycle of oppression in the earth. And we see this throughout the history of the world. This is certainly something that we see in the history of the world. We see it in our own culture. People living above the law and perpetrating violent acts, oppressive acts upon people and getting away with it. According to this view, God sends the flood to protect the world from being so corrupt that the vulnerable have no hope. That's the human ruler view of the sons of God. The third view is called the Sethite view. This view understands the sons of God to be descendants of the godly line of Seth while the daughters of men were were women descended from the ungodly line of Cain. Okay, and it's based in the genealogy from chapter 5 that we studied last week. Uh, Seth is said to be in the image of Adam, in the likeness of Adam, and Adam is said to be in the likeness of God. So because of that, Seth is a son of God and his family is identified with God's lineage while Cain's genealogy is not described in that way. And so this idea means that the sin committed here by the godly line of Seth was intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain. So why does this matter? I remember being asked this a number of times throughout my Christian life, throughout my ministry, Hey, so what do you think about the Nephilim? Who were the sons of God? And I remember time and time again, just going, I don't care. I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's not worth wasting time on. I don't care. And then I finally realized I'm not allowed to not care about God's word, any part of God's word. We're not allowed to not care. We have to look into this and understand God has recorded this for us For a reason. And so we have to look into it. So, what settles the issue? These are three perspectives that have been held by people for a very long time, and they all have wildly different implications. So, what settles the issue? While each of the views have their their merit, they can't all be true. And so, we need to look to Scripture as our authority. Okay, specifically, we need to allow the text to speak for itself in light of the context. And when we look at the context of Genesis 1 through 11, in my opinion, the Sethite view begins to fall apart. Okay, the Sethite view demands that we understand the story of Genesis 1 through 11 as being the divergence of two human lines. And while that does exist in the text, we've been talking about that the last couple of weeks, I think it is wrong to say that that is what the whole story is about. Genesis 1 through 11 is about the divergence of humans, the, the, the human line. More convincing would be the case that as humans multiply, sin is multiplying with them. As humans spread throughout the earth, sin is spreading throughout humanity and invading every aspect of human life and existence. And we see this happening from the individual perspective of Adam and Eve sin just affecting individuals, to then it affecting the family. We see sin affecting Adam and Eve's children in the story of Cain and Abel. Then we see it affecting culture in the story of Lamech, where it's not just that violence occurs, but now violence is being celebrated. Okay, and then Genesis 6 would communicate that sin is spreading on to something greater, something more pervasive. And so the question is, how do verses one through four further the development of sin here in chapter six? If the human ruler view is accepted then the next development is systemic sin. That sin has affected the ranks of humanity at the highest level and is approved of at the highest level. So it's gone from individuals to families to cultures to now it's actually built into the system and structures of humanity. Sin has now pervaded so much that it is allowable. It is acceptable. It is celebrated at the highest levels now we can look at our culture and go check right it's happening we see that make sense of our context if the supernatural view is accepted this next development shows that the problem in this world is not just human sin but demonstrates at the cosmic level a catastrophe the merging of human rebellion and spiritual rebellion Merging forces and opposing God. Check. We see that happening. We see a spiritual rebellion. A spiritual catastrophe at our heart level and in culture. We see these things happening. The stuff that is happening in our world today is straight up demonic dehumanizing, evil, trying to rob people, men and women made in the image of God and make them like animals, treat them like animals, live like animals, celebrate violence, celebrate wickedness. So as we look at the immediate context, we have to also then look at the rest of the Bible. Here's the thing, I have to be honest with you. The linguistic evidence of the use of the phrase sons of God in the Old Testament is pretty convincing. That it always applies to supernatural beings. We can't ignore that. As much as it makes us uncomfortable and makes us feel like we're living in middle earth, we have to take it seriously. Remember, different worldview, very different supernatural worldview. They looked at the world and they saw behind what we see a spiritual reality at play. Now as Christians, we believe that. Whether or not we believe what's happening here, we believe that this is a spiritual world. We can't deny that. We believe that God exists. We believe that Satan exists believe that sin is rebellion against a spiritual kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, and that it affects life here on earth. We believe these things. But when we look at the rest of the Bible, I I think the supernatural view gains some support. In the New Testament, we see demonic entities trying again to inhabit humanity, not through procreation, but through possession. Humans losing their humanity as victims of a spiritual attack, trying to take over what's going on in their lives. They're bent on corrupting and dehumanizing people as well as acquiring for themselves a physical body. We also have a very interesting comment in 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 20 say, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now the cultural interpretation of this text and this, the cultural interpretation of this idea of the spirits in prison in the days of Noah were those who committed this great transgression, the spiritual beings that committed this great sin. They have been bound in hell. And Jesus, after his death, but before his resurrection, he goes and descends to the, 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 the nether regions of the earth, goes and descends to hell, and he preaches to them. He does not go and preach to them for their salvation. He goes and preaches his victory over them. Remember how you tried to stop me from coming? You lose. You lose. I have been victorious. Lastly, Ephesians 6.12, a very famous verse. Paul gives a summary how he understands the human battle against sin. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Paul recognizes that our war that we wage in the spiritual realm is not just a physical battle. There is something sinister, something spiritual, something wicked behind it, that our war is against powers and principalities who are opposed to God. Supernatural view has a powerful case from Scripture, but opponents to the supernatural view will also point to scripture. Specifically, Matthew 22 verses 30. And this is what many of you have in your minds right now. When Jesus is confronted by the Sadducees about marriage in the resurrection and in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so people will point to that and say, see, angels can't procreate. If angels can't procreate, then this could not be referring to angels. But I would point out that it doesn't say that angels can't procreate. It says that angels don't procreate. Specifically, angels in heaven don't procreate. So the implication being angels who have rejected God, rebelled from heaven, fallen from heaven, maybe they do. It's inconclusive, but but the logic follows. So if we put all this together, look, I recognize it's not cut and dry. Okay, it's not an easy decision, which is why it's one of the most debated texts in the book of Genesis and and perhaps one of the most debated texts in all of the Bible. Okay, today most scholars fall into either the human ruler view or the supernatural view. Okay. um, It is important to recognize that the human ruler view and the Sethite view were not heard of until after the time of Christ. The earliest reference we have to the Sethite view uh, is AD 70. The standard interpretation of this text throughout the history of the Jewish people was that they saw these beings as supernatural beings who corrupted Humanity to prevent the seed of the woman from coming to crush the head of the serpent. And scripture is our authority, but the history of interpretation shouldn't be ignored. That this is the way the original audience understood this text. So, what do we do? Okay? Please hear me. This is. An important issue. Your salvation does not depend on whether or not you align with the supernatural, the human ruler view, or the Sethite view, but this is important because the implications are significant for us. Think of it this way. If the human ruler view is true, um, then we can find all kinds of places in scripture that speaks to the corruption at the highest level of human authority, and it, it's just a part of that. If the supernatural view is is what we believe, then we're getting a glimpse, not just into human sin, but we're getting a glimpse into the enemy's playbook. This is a tactic that the enemy uses, and we should be mindful that, that what Satan tries to do is infect and corrupt and distort, and we recognize that there is a spiritual reality behind the world today. However, Either way, whether the sons of God are supernatural beings or violent, oppressive human rulers, Genesis 6, 1 through 4 says that something happened that fundamentally corrupted humanity to such a degree that they are totally depraved and sinful. And the only way that God could rescue the world was with a cataclysmic undoing of creation and a new beginning in Noah. Regardless of how you understand the identity of the sons of God, it leads directly to the statement that every intention of the thoughts of humanity's heart was only evil continually. Whatever happened eventually leads to the depravity of humanity. And the only way that God could see a future for his relationship with his people was to start over and to bring his wrath against sin, to wash the world clean of corruption and begin again in Noah. And so the flood did not come because of the sons of God, whoever they were. The flood came because all of humanity was utterly corrupted and turning away from God. And this story communicates that if God had not done anything about it, the possibility of redemption would be lost. The reality of this story and the reality of God's judgment in the flood, listen, is good news. It's good news that God brings wrath against sin. It is good news that God is just. It is good news that God punishes wickedness because if he had not, humanity would be lost. See, our world wants to believe that humanity is mostly good. And that God owes us for our good intentions. But that's not the picture of Genesis 6. Nor is it the picture of humanity throughout the rest of the Bible. Nor is it a picture of our culture. Humanity is not mostly good. I've been fighting the temptation to just drop like Epstein's Island. Humanity is not good. We are not mostly good. We are wicked. We are depraved. Every intentions of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Now listen... However you understand the depravity of humanity, whether we are totally depraved as we could possibly be, or just every aspect of our lives is affected by sin, that there is no area of our lives in the flesh that isn't affected by sin. Look, we are in need of help. We are in need of redemption. We need a savior. You look at the world and guys, we're not getting ourselves out of this. Apart from the grace and power of Jesus, we need a savior. It doesn't matter that there are people in this world that are worse than you. Look, I hope that there are people in this world worse than you. And it wouldn't matter. God doesn't grade on a curve. It's pass, fail. You're righteous, you pass. You're not, you don't. God's holy sin cannot be in his presence. He's just, he must punish wickedness. In Noah's day, God says that every intention of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil continually. Jesus says in Mark 10, 18, that no one is good, but God alone. Paul says in Romans three twenty three that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Adam has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Pastor Nick has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Your pastors have sinned. Your deacons have sinned. Your parents have sinned. Your Bible teachers have sinned. You have sinned and you have fallen short of the glory of God. Scripture is clear. It doesn't matter that someone else has fallen less than you. You are fallen. We need a savior. You are not going to good work your way out of this. We need the grace of God, the power of God to come and do something about our sin so that we can be restored to him. This is, look, the flood is not an isolated incident from the past. It's an example of how radically God is committed to to preserving the purity of his creation. And it's a precursor, it is a foreshadowing of the judgment that's coming against sin at the end of the age. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 37 through 39 concerning the return of Christ and the future judgment. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were all unaware of the flood until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. The flood is a picture of God's wrath against sin that will come once and for all at the end of time. And this is sobering. And as civilized people, we hate the idea of the wrath of God. We don't like the idea of the wrath of God. The culture doesn't like the idea of the wrath of God. You might not like the idea of the wrath of God, but just because the wrath of God does make us uncomfortable, it doesn't mean that it's not good. The wrath of God is a good thing because what is the alternative? a God who ignores evil and wickedness, who looks at the vile things in this world, looks at the violence against the vulnerable and says, it's okay, I love everybody. Come on in. You're fine. Do whatever you want. Just winks at sin, sin, sweeps it under the rug. Listen, God is love, but God's love requires that he be angry about sin because it violates what he loves. All of you who are parents know this. It's because you love your children that when you see sin tearing them down and and, and tearing them away from from the God who made them and and their parents who love them, you get angry at that sin. You're angry at anything that would try to hurt the thing that you love. If if someone's attacking my children and I go, hey, God's told me to love everybody, so I'm not gonna do anything about that. You would have every right to accuse me of not loving my kids because I haven't protected them. And a God who ignores sin is not just. A God who ignores sin is complicit in the violence perpetrated in the world if he doesn't deal with it. Nor would God be holy for allowing sin in his presence. And a God who does not punish sin is not worthy of your worship. Nor would you even want to worship him. He'd be like an unjust judge, like all of the politicians we love to hate because of their corruption. This would make God no different. It would actually make God one of the rulers who violates his people by not intervening when they are violently attacked. The flood is a wake up call to all of us who are growing numb to sin in the world and numb to the sin in our own hearts. And it's a comfort to those who look at the world and wonder if justice will ever be served. Whether it's because of the wickedness at the heights of human power or the demonic powers at work in human sin, all of it will get what it deserves. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. What it deserves, its wages, is death. It will get what it deserves. Your sin will get what it deserves. The sin of the world will get what it deserves. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this changes everything. This changes absolutely everything. Everything That word favor there in your text is translated elsewhere as grace. Same word, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And it's because of God's grace that he chooses to rescue Noah and his family to start the world over. Before Noah is ever called righteous and blameless, Noah is a recipient of grace. Let me break this down for you, okay? Justice, justice occurs when a criminal gets what they deserve. Justice is when you get what you deserve. Mercy is when you get less than you deserve. You deserve death, you're just getting life in prison. That's mercy. But grace is getting what you never deserved. Grace is being convicted of a crime. You did it. You're guilty. You are worthy of the punishment. But here's freedom and a billion dollars instead. That's what the grace of God is. You're guilty. But guess what? I'm going to treat you like you're righteous. Because of my son, because of my love for you, I'm going to give you what you never deserved. And so when humanity is so utterly depraved that there is no way for us to move forward in our relationship to God, God must be the one to initiate a rescue plan. Noah didn't deserve it but he received it through faith. Hebrews eleven seven seven says, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Because he received it by faith, he is declared righteous. And so in the, the, the wickedness of the world, Noah builds an ark, And is saved through the wrath of God. But what must we do to be saved from the coming wrath? I want to close with just two quick points. What must we do to be saved from the coming wrath? First, church, get serious about sin. It's time to get serious about sin. Sin isn't just little mistakes that we make, okay? It is the height of human arrogance and rebellion at best. At worst, it is participation with Satan in his rebellion against God and the defiling of his world. And the penalty for sin is not just death, but hell, eternal separation from God. And unless we get serious about sin, and the penalty it deserves, we cannot escape the wrath of God. Get serious about sin. Confession is taking sin seriously and just acknowledging, agreeing with God that your sin is as wicked as he says it is. Saying, God, this thing in my life, it's bad. It's it's really bad. I believe you. I believe you that it's bad. That's confession. And then repentance is turning from it. Saying, Lord, I'm leaving this here with you. I've been pursuing this thing, this wicked thing. I'm gonna leave it there and I'm gonna pursue you. I'm gonna walk toward you. I'm gonna walk in faith. I'm gonna walk with God. I'm gonna walk in righteousness. I'm gonna walk away from that and pursue the good. That is what repentance is. It is time to get serious about sin. God loves you. He loves the world. He wants to rescue you. So get serious about sin and second, get on the boat. Faith isn't just some intellectual assent to some truth about God. It is believing that he created an escape route. For Noah, it was the ark, but for you, it's Jesus. See, Jesus is better than Noah's ark. When Noah climbed on board of the ark, and God shut him in, the wrath of God through the flood fell on the world. The ark experienced the wrath of God, but floated Noah and his family safely upon the surface of it and through the waters of God's wrath. Jesus Christ is the same, but better. On the cross, Jesus experienced the full weight of the wrath of God for sin. Scripture says that he who knew no sin became sin, that you might become the righteousness of God. That in Christ, all of your sin that deserves the wrath of God, that deserves death and hell was nailed to the cross. That Jesus experienced the full weight of the wrath of God so that everyone who takes refuge in Jesus through faith by believing that his death has satisfied the wrath of God for your sake, you know, now sail through the wrath of God in Christ, safe on the surface of the waters. You pass through death and into life because of Jesus. Jesus is a better ark of God. He nails the sin to the cross. That sin died with Christ that day. He's buried in the grave. And three days later, he rose from the dead, leaving your sin in the grave, never to have claim on you again. So that when God looks at you through faith, his words concerning Noah are true of you, righteous and blameless. His words spoken over Jesus at his baptism when Jesus passed through the waters is this is my son who I love in whom I am well pleased. Because of Jesus, the wrath of God has already come down on your sin and you have been spared from it. And when he raised from the dead, he gave new life to all who believe. And as Noah and his family sailed safely through the storm to begin the world anew, everyone who believes in Jesus is a new creation. Look, if you put your faith in Jesus today, if you've already put your faith in Jesus today, or God right now is just pulling on your heart, make that decision. And he's pulling on you. You you make that decision to trust that the death of Jesus applies to your sin, applies to your unrighteousness, applies to your rebellion, and sets you free and sails you through the wrath of God and into the new creation. Scripture says that the old you has passed away, that in Christ you have died to sin, but in his resurrection. You have been raised to new life. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. If you are here and you are a Christian, then your sin has been atoned for. The wrath of God has been satisfied and all you have to wait for is a future in glory with him. But if you will not take your sin seriously and you will not in faith trust in Christ and get on the boat that sails his people through the wrath of God. Then in the last days, there won't be an escape. It Doesn't matter what you've done. How small or how great, I know in a room this size, there's some people going, that's ridiculous. My sin doesn't deserve death. Yeah, it does. And there are some of you who are thinking, that's ridiculous. Nobody could ever forgive me of my sin. God does. If you trust in Him today, you're washed, you're cleansed, you're forgiven, you're made holy, you're declared righteous. And there is nothing but hope for you. Father, by your Spirit, in this moment, convict our hearts of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. But Lord, deliver us by your Spirit through faith in Jesus. We believe you, Lord, when you say that the wages of sin is death. But we also believe you when you say that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Pray that now as we worship, as we sing, as we pray, Lord, we would find our lives hidden with Christ in God and full only of reason to worship and completely devoid of any reason to fear. We have no reason to fear the wrath of God because Jesus has saved us through it. May we lift up our voice, stir us up to worship you as you deserve to be worshiped, Jesus. We pray it in your name, amen.